I'm Dr. Deed Harrison, and this is the CBP podcast for July 2009. Currently, I'm in Sydney, Australia, looking out over Darling Harbor. It's a gorgeous view, and it's a gorgeous day. I'm here doing uh, two CBP conferences, and I'll return back to the United States on July 20th. The topics for this podcast will be the upcoming CBP seminars in the United States in August and the annual CBP conference in September. Also, what I'd like to talk about in this podcast is the recent CCGPP Guideline Committee Thoracic Section. They just came out with their Thoracic Spine Guidelines as a draft in May of this year, and there's several issues of concern, and I'd like to take a couple statements and excerpts and then present to you, the audience of this podcast, the thoracic spine in health and disease. So what we'll do is we'll take a brief break for our sponsors, and we'll start in with the conferences, and we'll end with the thoracic spine in health and disease. Thanks, and I'll talk to you in a minute. This portion of the CPP podcast is brought to you by Posture Co., developers of the X-Ray digitizing software suite known as Posture Ray. For more information, please go to www.posturco.com. Welcome back. For the first topic of the July 2009 CBP podcast, I'd like to update you on the CBP seminars that will be available in August next month of 2009. The first one is August 1st and 2nd in Denver, Colorado. I'll be presenting the CBP Case Management and Thoracic Spine Rehabilitation Seminar. Now this is a seminar that is part of the Advanced Certification Program. However, it is also a great starting place for anybody that's new to CBP technique. While there are some topics in this conference that are for the advanced doctors specifically, it is a great place to start because half of the seminar is case analysis and management where the attendee is walked through intermediate and advanced as well as beginning types of CBP cases. But uh, more so, we present the intermediate and advanced cases, but there's a lot to be learned there for the new attendee as well. Again, that's August 1st and 2nd in Denver, Colorado. The second seminar in August is August 8th and 9th in San Francisco, California, and that's the CBP Drop Table Adjusting and Orthotic Intervention Conference. Uh, this conference is one of the basic certification programs. It's a, a great place to start if you're new to CBP technique and it's also a great conference to attend if you've if you've been to CBP seminars many times over. The reason is is that there's a lot of new material that we always present at every CBP seminar. In addition, there's just so much material that we present in a 12-hour program that it's really uh, very unlikely that the attendee will pick up every detail and every concept of the information presented the first time around. The, the third CBP seminar is 
August 21st through August 23rd. It's Friday through Sunday, and it's the CBP Hands-On Workshop. This one will be held at my office in Elko, Nevada. It's a three-day seminar. It starts on Friday and goes from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Friday, and then all day Saturday from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m., and then in the morning on Sunday from 8 a.m. to noon. This is part of the basic certification program. Now, it's a great place to start. However, we, we don't usually allow the first-time CBP attendee to come to this one. The reason is we are going to be testing your ability and testing your knowledge on how to do CBP technique. It is a hands-on workshop, and it uh, requires that you do have an understanding of, of the material that will be presented. The final seminar in August is the Lumbar Rehab Seminar, August 29th and 30th in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is also part of the Basic Certification Seminar Series. Uh, it is a good seminar to start with if you're brand new. However, it does require a little bit of background information uh, that, that we use in this seminar. There's not a lot of adjusting that's presented as the title suggests, it suggests it's a rehabilitation seminar. It's structural rehabilitation of the thoracolumbar pelvic region. Again, that's Charlotte, North Carolina, August 29th and 30th. The final seminar I'd like to talk to you about is the CBP Annual Conference. This one is a special event. It is to be held September 25th through the 27th in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's at the Biltmore Resort and Spa, and it's our 31st annual CBP conference. There's several speakers at this one, including Dr. Christopher Kent on Friday, who's the keynote speaker. Dr. Joe Betts will be presenting. Uh, Dr. Chris Coloca will be presenting. Dr. Dwight DeGeorge will be presenting. Dr. Phil Harrington will be presenting. Myself, Dr. Deed Harrison, I will be presenting. And then I hope uh, my father will be able to present uh, to the group for about 30 minutes if he's able to. Now, the topics range from scientific evidence supporting vertebral subluxation and subluxation theories, the biomechanics and neurophysiology of spinal adjusting will be, will be presented, a review of, of CBP nonprofit, uh, our research past, present, and future will be presented. Dr. Phil Harrington will be presenting class 4 laser therapy in chiropractic practice, which should be a, a, a great uh, presentation and, and uh, should add a, a lot to the attendees' understanding and knowledge of, of different types of lasers and their uses. Also, we will be uh, presenting a overview of CBP examination protocol, protocols and procedures. Dr. Joe Betts will be presenting this on behalf of uh, Best Notes. And then we'll have a variety of CBP technique case studies that will be presented by several CBP field practitioners, which is usually a very successful presentation because doctors get to see what their CBP colleagues are doing in their offices and how they approach 
the management of uh, unique cases that uh, present in the typical chiropractic practice. Okay, so that's the upcoming seminars in August and September. I, I really hope to see some of you there. And uh, what we'll do right now is take a, a brief break for our sponsors, and then we'll get back with the main topic of this podcast, which is the thoracic spine in health and disease. Okay, I'll talk to you in a minute. This break is brought to you by CBP Seminars and our all-new revamped CBP patient education website. Browse to our beta site at cbppatient.com and see what your doctor listing will look like. For more information, email us at webmaster at idealspine.com and soon you'll be able to go in and log in and update your own doctor profile. So again, check out our beta site at cbppatient.com. Welcome back. This is the second section and the main topic for the CBP July 2009 podcast. What I'd like to talk to you about today is the thoracic kyphosis in health and disease. And what I will do is present some interesting evidence linking hyperthoracic kyphosis to different health and disease disorders in the human populations. However, before I, I present that evidence, I'd like to pre- present evidence to the contrary put forth recently by the CCGPP guideline committee. They just released in May of 2009 their thoracic guideline draft. And like the other ones, it was relatively negative towards anything in chiropractic that is structurally based and corrective care based and uses subluxation type of analysis and treatment intervention. So let me first get uh, under your skin with this uh, recent evidence or recent statement from the CCGPP thoracic thoracic guideline draft. Uh, To begin, the, the guideline committee was asked if the sagittal thoracic kyphosis was a notable health concern for patient populations presenting to chiropractic practices. And this is the CCGPP guideline committee that was asked this. Astonishingly, the CCGPP guideline committee members answered no. The sagittal configuration of the thoracic spine is not a notable health concern in patient populations seeking chiropractic care. They stated, and this is a quote, there is high quality literature reviewing mid-level data that they called 2++ indicating that sagittal spinal curve configurations are not currently a notable health concern. And clinicians should downplay the significance of sagittal spinal curve configurations and pending additional higher quality evidence assure their patients that sagittal spinal curves do not appear to be associated with health or pain, end quote. That's from the CCGPP Guideline Committee. Now, keep in mind, these people were self-elected to represent the chiropractic profession to our state associations, our state boards, and to government agencies, insurance companies, and third-party payers. And this is their viewpoint. Now, they 
referenced one single paper in support of their statement that the thoracic kyphosis is not a notable health concern. And that single paper was critiqued by me in the last CBP podcast. That paper was by Christensen and Hartvigsen in GMPT November-December 2008 that was a systematic literature review of studies looking at whether or not there's a relationship between the sagittal plane curves and different health and disease disorders. And if you're, you will recall from my po- last podcast or go and listen to that last podcast, I demonstrated that the Christensen and Hartvigsen paper ignored approximately 56 to 58 percent of the literature on the topic and that the overwhelming majority of the literature they ignored found a positive association between the sagittal plane curves in the spine and different health and disease. Thus, the Christensen et al. paper, in my opinion, was or is a very poor, poorly designed study and, in fact, may have been preconceived to purposefully reach a certain agenda. I say this because I don't see how someone could ignore more than 50% of the literature on a topic that they're reviewing. So that's my opinion on it. I I have no proof other than my opinion, but I I leave that in your hands, and and you, the listener, can decide whether or not you agree with that or not. Uh, Again, that was in my podcast the, in the the last uh, presentation, I believe that was uh, earlier this year, uh, February or March. Okay, what I'd like to do is now present some studies that are contrary to the CCGPP committee's view of the thoracic kyphosis. The first paper that I would like to present is from Spine, and the Spine paper happens to be a 2007 paper that was on uh, uh, pediatric, well, pediatric and adolescent patients. The uh, The paper is uh, by Pichara Porn, and forgive the uh, pronunciation at all, in Spine 2007, it's volume 15 number 32, and it's pages uh, 2,226 through 2,231. Now this is a retrospective analysis of 50 consecutive patients aged 8 to 18 years of age that have hyperthoracic kyphosis. Now hyperthoracic kyphosis was defined via x-ray and was greater than 45 degrees of curvature. These 18 to 8-year-olds were compared with 50 normal patients with thoracic kyphosis that had thoracic curvatures of less than 45 degrees. The Scoliosis Research Society's outcome assessment instrument was used as an indicator of health and disease and disability, and this is a validated instrument. The results, higher kyphosis magnitudes were associated with increased pain, lower self-image, decreased overall function, and activity, 
Significantly, patients with thoracic hyperkyphosis were more likely to be symptomatic compared to the normal subjects in all domains. Now, this is an important paper because it, it's not only dealing with pain, which it did have pain results there, but it had psychosocial measurements as well as function. So we're finding out that the thoracic kyphosis is linked to overall health in children that are 8 to 18 years of age. It seems to me that the CCGPP committee should have looked at this evidence. Okay, that's the first paper. Before I go on to the second paper, I, I need to take a brief break from our sponsors, and then we'll get back with the second paper on the thoracic kyphosis in health and disease. I'll talk to you in just a minute. This break is brought to you by PosturePrint by Biotonics. So when you're digitizing your patient's posture, why don't you choose a system that has been established for reliability and validity in such journals as Chiropractic and Osteopathy, JMPT, and European Spine Journal. For more information, browse to www.postureprint.com. Welcome back. I'd like to present the second paper that describes the relationship between the thoracic kyphosis and different health disorders. This one is on geriatric populations. This is by Balzini L. et al. out of the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. It was published in 2003, volume 51, pages 1419 to 1426. Here, 60 prospectively selected women aged 70 to 93 years old with thoracic hyperkyphotic postures were assessed with the standing wall to occiput distance. Now, no x-rays were assessed here. They did a visual assessment of thoracic hyperkyphotic deformity. They had the subject stand with their backs up against the wall in a relaxed position, and they looked at how far the skull was in front of the wall and they call that the wall to occipital uh, distance and it's a measurement of essentially rigid anterior head translation due to thoracic hyperkyphosis. The results 11 women out of the 60 were measured as mild with less than 5 centimeters of forward head posture. 28 women out of 60 were measured as moderate being 5.8 one to eight centimeters forward and 21 out of 60 women were measured as severe greater than eight centimeters of forward head posture with the wall to occipital distance importantly they found increased pain in the cervical and lumbar regions related to increased wall to occipital distance also significantly to the chiropractor is depression motivation muscle impairment balance and gait as well as disability scores were statistically correlated to the severity of the wall to occipital distance which is a measurement of thoracic deformity now as a chiropractor we look at this and we say wow this is incredible we're seeing that not just pain but we're seeing that a person's outlook on their life depression and motivation correlate to the sagittal thoracic posture as measured with the wall to occipital distance that's huge chiropractic is more than pain it's a health care 
it is health care. Anybody that thinks that posture and the thoracic kyphosis don't contribute to a patient's health and well-being ought to read this paper. It's amazing. When you see things like this, it just it makes you realize that, hey, we're doing the right thing, we're in the right profession, and we're the only ones that can help these people. Again, that was the Balzini Study, 2003, Journal of the American Geriatric Society. I think the CCGPP committee probably should have read this paper, and maybe they that would have uh, assisted in altering their viewpoint. Who knows? The third paper I'd like to discuss is a paper that uh, came out in 2005. It's also on uh, the uh, geriatric population. This paper is by Cato et al. K-A-D-O. It was in the, the Journal of Gerontology, Aging, Biological Science, Medicine, and Science. I think that's uh, the title of the journal. It's relatively long. Uh, the the abbreviated version is the Journal of Gerontol A Bio Law Sci Med Sci 2005, Volume 60, pages 633 through 637. And by Sci, I should have said it's S C I. Okay, this is a prospective study of 1,578 community community dwelling men and women. Community dwelling means that they're in a senior citizen's home. Now here, Cato et al. looked at the relationship between rigid thoracic hyperkyphosis and pain and disability. They had the subjects lie supine on a on a bench, and they they looked at how far the head remained above the the bench. In other words, their butt and their legs and their thoracic spine is touching the bench, but the head sticks up above the bench due to rigid thoracic hyperkyphosis. They looked at the number of 1.7 centimeter blocks that could be placed between the back of the skull and the bench in these supine elderly subjects. The results. Men were more often found to be hyperkyphotic than women. In addition to pain, a statistically significant graded stepwise increase in physical and functional difficulty was found as hyperkyphosis increased. In other words, as the number of blocks that they could place between the skull and the bench increased, the subject's physical and functional abnormalities became more severe. So pain was also statistically associated with, with this, but the important thing is, from a chiropractor's point of view, is that we see physical and functional abnormalities associated with this as well. And that's not to minimize pain, but that's it's to show that, hey, it's more than pain. Chiropractic is more than pain, and so is thoracic kyphosis and postural abnormality. It's health. It is the subject's health. Okay, before we get to the fourth paper, I need to take a break uh, for our sponsors. And I'll get back to you and talk to you about the fourth paper. This portion of the CPP podcast is brought to you by Posture Code, developers of the Posture Screen software program. If you're looking for a quick and easy postural assessment tool where you can do it out in the field, it has spinal screening in a mall or in the gym, or even after one of your lectures, then Posture Screen is ready for you. 
Just browse to PostureScreen.com or PostureCo.com and see how PostureScreen can be a positive influence on your practice. Again, PostureCo.com. Okay, welcome back. Uh, for the fourth paper, describing the relationship between thoracic hyperkyphosis and health and disease, I'd like to present the, the paper by Colham, C-U-L-H-A-M, and colleagues from Spine, 1994, uh, volume 11, pages 1250 through 1255. Here, 15 osteoporotic women aged 65 and older were matched to 15 healthy females. The thoracic kyphosis uh, ranged between 35 and 58 degrees and was measured with a surface contour system known as the three-space isotrack system. Now, before any of you get upset at me uh, talking about surface contour, this device has been validated as compared to radiographs using the Cobb angle to measure thoracic kyphosis, and that, that's important. So this is a validated uh, technique to assess the thoracic kyphosis externally. Now, you can't do segmental angles with this, and you can't determine fractures with this, but you can assess the overall thoracic kyphosis. Uh, outcome measures in this particular paper included vital capacity, or VC, inspiratory capacity, or IC, expiratory reserve volume, ERV, and rib mobility. The results, increased thoracic kyphosis significantly correlated to lower values for vital capacity, to lower values of inspiratory capacity, and to thoracic rib mobility, and to uh, TLC. This was uh, uh, compared against the normal subjects. So subjects with increased kyphosis basically had difficulties in rib uh, excursion and difficulties or impairment in uh, lung volume and uh, expiration. Uh, so in other words, uh, if you have hyperkyphosis in an older uh, female age populations, uh, you can't breathe that well. Uh, other than that, it's normal for you, right? if you assume that uh, that uh, difficulty breathing is a normal variant. Of course, the CCGPP guideline committee obviously considers that uh, difficulty and abnormalities with uh, respiration is a normal variant because uh, they, they said that uh, there's no concern with the thoracic kyphosis in health. Of course, I'm being facetious here, right? Just tell your pa patients uh, it's fine, just don't breathe. Yeah, you'll be fine. For the fifth paper I'd like to talk about, uh, this one is uh, shifting gears. It's moving away from physical complaints like uh, pain and disability to uh, maybe a, more of a visceral disturbance. Uh, this paper comes from Lind et al., L-I-N-D, and this is out of the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology in 1996 volume 87, page 605 through 609. Uh, this is a prospective evaluation of two groups of women in an effort to identify physical factors that may be related to uterine prolapse. And that's uh, prolapse uh, below or past 
uh, the introitus. Now, group one consisted of 48 women with uterine prolapse, and group two was 48 controls matched by age, weight, obviously sex, menopausal and hormonal status, which are both very important to the study. Uh, radiographically determined thoracic hypokyphosis was measured with the Ferguson method, which is where we're putting X's in the vertebra to identify the centroid, and then we do that at the top and the bottom as well as the apex of the curve. And we connect the uh, centroids of uh, uh, the, the vertebral bodies and measure the angle there. The results, the thoracic kyphosis was statistically different between the groups. Group 1, the women with uterine prolapsed, averaged 13 degrees of kyphosis. Group 2 averaged 8.1 degrees of kyphosis, and this was statistically different. Now, these, these are small values, but you've got to realize that's because of the methodology. The Riser-Ferguson method is going to give you small values of kyphosis. The Cobb angles would be much larger, as would the posterior tangent methods. Further results. For each one degree increase of thoracic kyphosis, uterine prolapse risk increased 1.35 times. Now that's an odds ratio. This is an important paper. This suggests that increases in the thoracic kyphosis can put pressure on the internal organs and perhaps that pressure over time causes prolapse of the uterus. Of co course, according to the CCGPP, that wouldn't be important, right? Maybe there weren't that many uh, women on the committee because obviously the women would, would think that uh, prolapse and herniation of the uterus might be an important health concern for patient populations. For the sixth paper, I'd like to present the study by Kobayashi et al. out of the journal Osteoporosis International. And this is 2008, volume 19, pages 65 through 69. Kobayashi et al. prospectively followed 100 subjects aged 61.9 years of, of age for an average of 12 years in an effort to determine physical risk factors for the development of new vertebral compression fractures. They used x-ray to determine the lumbar lordosis L1 to L5 and thoracic kyphosis T4 to T12. Importantly, what they found is a decrease in either the thoracic or the lumbar curvature by at least one standard deviation or more carried a statistically significant risk of new fracture that was independent of existing fracture. The odds ratio or relative risk of this was 3.06. Now this is a very statistically significant finding. I know I said I was talking about thoracic hyperkyphosis, and this one, in fact, deals with hypokyphosis. However, I thought I'd throw this in as well, because the CCGPP committee didn't just stick to hyper. They discussed the entire uh, sagittal thoracic kyphosis, whether it was hyper or hypo. In addition, this paper by Kobayashi et al., they used a multivariate model, not just a single variant model, and they looked at new vertebral fracture risk 
in the presence of both a one standard deviation decrease in each curve. So both curves had to be de decreased, thoracic curve and lumbar curve. Now in this multivariate model, they showed a relative risk of 8.64 times in the presence of both a one standard deviation decrease in the lumbar lordosis as well as a one standard deviation decrease in the, in the thoracic kyphosis. Now this is huge. Th this shows that losing your sagittal plane curves in an older subject will increase the risk of new compression fractures. Why? Well, we decrease the shock absorbing capacity of the sagittal plane curves so all the, the pressure and compression is acting on the vertebral body through the disc and that's going to lead to and accelerate compression fractures. The, the sagittal curves are likened to a spring. They will take some of the load and absorb some of the shock. Uh, you take the curve out and you increase fracture risk. Uh, apparently, the CCGPP committee didn't think that uh, developing new compression fractures was a significant health concern to be worried about in patient populations. Okay, before we, we come to the uh, final two papers, uh, we need to take a break uh, for our sponsors again. So when we come back, we'll talk about the last two papers. Uh, talk to you in a minute. This break is brought to you by CBP Seminars, and we just wanted to let you know that we do have a Facebook page. Uh, obviously, you just go to group section and follow us uh, through uh, Chiropractic Biophysics. Feel free to post any uh, questions you may have and join our group to stay in uh, constant contact with us. You can also follow us on Twitter if you want the most up-to-date information. Just uh, browse to CBP Seminars on Twitter. Uh, if you'd like to follow us uh, a little more closely, just to email us or join our email list on the homepage at idealspine.com. Okay, welcome back. Uh, the final two papers that I would like to discuss on the thoracic kyphosis and health and disease come from Cato et al. Now, some of you probably have heard about the uh, 2004 Cato study out of the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, uh, 2004, volume 52, number 10, pages 1662 through 1667. This is a, a prospective longitudinal average 4.2 year follow-up study of 1,353 community-dwelling senior subjects. Again, these are subjects that live in a senior citizen's center. Cato et al. set out to investigate the relationship between rigid hyperthoracic kyphosis and early demise, or premature death. They investigated or measured the thoracic hyperkyphosis with the subject's supine lying on a bench and looking at the number of 1.7 centimeter blocks that could be placed between the back of their head and the bench that they were lying on. So again, this is a measurement of rigid hyperthoracic kyphosis. When the subject lies on their back, their butt, their legs, their thoracic spine, and their head should rest on the table. And they're looking at how far the head sticks up in front of the table. Results in age and sex-adjusted analysis individuals with hyperkyphotic postures had a statistically significant greater mortality rate, odds ratio of 1.44. 
Now many of you have heard about this paper and at the time it came out it was one of four studies that identified a correlation between thoracic hyperkyphosis and early death in seniors. Now some of the academics in the profession have uh, really downplayed uh, this particular paper saying that uh, there was too many vari variables and uh, they didn't account for X, Y, and Z conditions. Well, the, the Cato et al. paper was actually one of the best done at that time in 2004, and, and they did look at um, underlying conditions like uh, heart disease and, and smoking, things like that. However, one of the things they did not assess was associated compression fractures, and that was used as a, a, a critical analysis of the 2004 Cato paper because compression fractures also are linked to premature death. So Cato et al. took this particular criticism uh, to heart, and in 2009, they came out with another paper. This one is relatively recent. So this is uh, the last paper by Cato, and it's from the Annals of Internal Medicine, 2009, volume 150, number 10, pages 681 through through 687. Now this is a prospective cohort study of 610 white female females aged 67 to 93 years old. Here Cato and et al investigated the relationship of thoracic hyperkyphosis with and without vertebral fracture to early demise. Thoracic hyperkyphosis was assessed via a flexible ruler and radiographic vertebral fractures were defined by uh, vertebral morphometry and mortality was assessed during an average follow-up of 13 and a half years. Now before you get uh, upset at me for talking about a study with the flexible ruler, in the thoracic region, the thoracic region only, a flexible ruler has been shown to at least correlate to a Cobb angle on an x-ray in the thoracic kyphosis. It's the only region of the spine that has validity for the flexible ruler. In other words, the cervical and lumbar regions, I wouldn't be talking about a flexible ruler paper. But in the thoracic spine, we can get away with it. Certainly, the fractures have to be assessed with radiographic technology. Results. After adjusting for age, for each standard deviation increase, in thoracic kyphosis, there was a 1.14 fold increased risk of death, p less than, or excuse me, p equals 0 0.023. After adjusting for low bone mineral density and existing vertebral fractures, women with greater kyphosis were at risk for earlier death. The relative risk per standard deviation increase was similar. P equals 0 0.029. So this particular paper addressed some of the concerns in 2004 and they found even when they account for vertebral fracture and low bone density there still is a risk that thoracic kyphosis by itself carries for early death. Now also important in this paper is when they looked at a multivariate model where they added not only thoracic kyphosis to the equation but existing and prevalent vertebral fractures, there was a greater risk of death. So 
the more conditions they had, the, the greater the probability was of early death at 13 and a half years. Okay, that, that's about uh, eight papers we went through, and I, I picked some of the, the more interesting papers to go through. Uh, and not that these are the only ones, but they're relatively interesting because it talks about adolescence to geriatrics, and it talks about uh, not only pain, but it talks about disability, function, emotion, uh, social function, you know, how one looks at their quality of life. And then we ended with early demise. To me, the above or the, the just reviewed eight studies demonstrates that there is good evidence linking thoracic hyperkyphosis to health and disease disorders in human populations. To me, the, the astute chiropractor should assess patient populations for normal thoracic kyphosis, and we should intervene when abnormalities are identified. Um, there are normal values for the thoracic kyphosis. Uh, uh, in different ages from about 5 to 8 years old on up to geriatrics. Uh, CBP technique, we have done some of these normal uh, data investigations. Our, our model is a good fit for subjects that are ages 13 to 60 years old. Uh, less than uh, less than that and older than that, you have to adjust the values slightly. Uh, and We teach the, these topics in our seminars. Uh, as a final statement on this topic, I'd, I'd like to just end with my opinion about the CCGPP uh, Guideline Committee statement. It, it really is absolutely astonishing to me that the chiropractic profession continues to allow the CCGPP Committee to represent us in any manner, let alone these guidelines, as a healthcare profession to our own professional boards and not only to our boards, but to government agencies and, worse yet, the insurance industry. In my opinion, the CCGPP has an agenda, and the agenda is to limit chiropractic that doesn't fit their specific definition. And in, in my opinion, their specific definition doesn't include subluxation-based chiropractors. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, uh, month's podcast and I hope this provides you some uh, fuel for the fight. I hope that uh, provides you some nice evidence maybe to take back to your practice and share with your patients and really it lets you know that you are doing the right thing. You you are making a difference in the public's life and in uh, more specifically your patients lives. So keep up the fight and I'll uh, look forward to seeing you at future CBP seminars and look forward to talking to you again on upcoming CBP podcasts. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the attention.